you're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 20, and we're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. So I have some breaking news for you today. What are this they? time, it's literally about breaking something kind of news. The Grolsch-style bottle that I was using to ferment some of the water kefir exploded, which you saw, which was very dangerous. And so I just wanted to say that, as I've said before, I've never known anyone that's actually had a bottle break in fermentation. Well, now I have. I thought previously you were referring to jars breaking. Jars breaking. And yeah, so I just don't generally see it happening with, with vegetable ferments still. The I guess if it's hot enough, it could if it was built up quick enough. But um, it, it, this was for water kefir. So again, something more similar to beer brewing making process, which, you know, the longer someone does that, the more likelihood they are going to have something break or uh, you know, a, a glass grenade of sorts, but these things are very dangerous when they do happen. And I've learned a couple things since. And one of those being that, well, for one, I don't think I was using a, um, the right kind of girl style bottle. These are the flip top bottles that have this, the little, little uh, for, for beer drinking generally, but this one was just from the local co-op and it, I don't think it's actually meant for pressure like this. And I think it's made of thinner glass than something that was made for beer making. And Obviously so, not. Well, or this pressure just built up so much because this was the first time I'd given the grains, not the grains, but the second fermentation stage, I put some prune juice in it and just bam, it was, it's dangerous. I mean, glass shards everywhere. And uh, luckily no one was in the space of the kitchen, but a couple safeguards that I'll be putting into effect now are for one, getting thicker walled, stronger girl style bottles or other fermenting vessels. And also just fermenting things, be it in Mason jars, be it in flip top jars, or, you know, if you're us- using picklet jars, there's no pressure that's really going to build up in something like that with an, anything with an airlock, it's not going to build up, but I'm just going to put them in a cupboard or a cabinet or pantry or just behind something closed. So if something else does explode, I mean, I've been doing this for five years. I haven't had anything explode. But have you had anything explode in a mason jar? This was a bottle though. Well, on the same day, I've had two breakages of glasses in the same day that night. So that was in the the morning-ish hours. That night, this is, I think, know what it was, but I had some kefir that had been in the refrigerator for a while. So some pressure building up in that, but then I was running out of room in the refrigerator. So I put a full gallon of milk on top of a a layer of mason jars, which I have done. I put things on top, but I don't ever put that much weight and that weight kind of just put enough pressure and busted out one corner. I mean, it's a rounded jar, but mason ball jars sometimes you can kind of say there's corners to them the whole edge of one quadrant i guess you could say just is just was gone and so that one gone it busted out so it wasn't an explosion in the same sense of the whole entire thing breaking uh, but that one edge just kind of busted out and then broke into pieces and shards inside the refrigerator i heard that one pop right about when i was ready to go to bed and that was a fun little cleanup in inside the refrigerator but Again, yeah, fermentation is dangerous. Well, fermentation isn't dangerous. I mean, it's just important to understand it that dealing with glass dangerous. under pressure is dangerous. And to a certain extent, I have maybe been a little bit more lax than than warranted. So I am taking extra precautions just because thinking about how that could just shoot out shards and cause some damage. I mean, really, they are g- grenades when they explode like that. Um, so Yes, they are very brought it to my mind realizing that these things are dangerous so i'm just going to keep them behind closed doors i'll keep my ferments sealed up uh be behind something so that if they do explode which i'm hoping they won't anyway well if you check on them regularly they shouldn't they shouldn't but this one was just that prune juice it just loved it and that i had checked it the night before and this was in the morning so it it was just it it was under a lot of pressure. It just had built up really quickly. Don't know what was up with it, but dangerous. So 
nothing to really be afraid of in fermentation really, but just being aware of these kind of things, especially as in some parts of the world, it's getting warmer. So the warmer it is, the faster things are going to ferment. So just keep that in mind. If things are fermenting faster, pressure CO2 is going to be building up faster in closed mason jars or otherwise, if you're not using any kind of airlock system or even the flip top lids that I've talked about before, where it will release some of the pressure out, it's still holding a lot of pressure in there. So if it were to build up too fast, it could still explode. But generally, even those aren't going to go so fast. I mean, again, it's recommended that you're doing ferments at a little bit lower temperature anyway. If it's 90 degrees outside, don't be doing the ferment out in the sun. That probably will explode. But just, just something to keep in mind. Other things that... No, I think that's great advice, especially for those that don't really think about it. Yeah, and for anyone that hasn't... Such as yourself? Yeah, so now I'm thinking about it. Something else I'm thinking about is is in the process of of reading Michael Pollan's book. We talked plenty about this before, so I won't go into it. But, you know, there was an interview on the Colbert Report last week. You can see that. That's in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast. It's actually pretty funny. The show notes are at firmup.com slash podcast slash 20. And yes, like you said, they are, um, you know, it's funny, just a short little six minute thing. But I, my quick calculation when I first got the book on, on release day was that it's about 170 pages that are strictly about fermentation. Now that's including bread and but that's fermenting. Well, yeah, definitely. It's including bread you, and you, you vegetables it- and animals. I did not include the the alcohol section in that because that's even more. So if you want to go more broad fermentation, but I was just 170 pages of fermented foods, not including anything in the introduction or elsewhere throughout scattered throughout, but just the chapters specifically on fermented foods. I don't think anyone's going to buy the book and just read the fermented food section. I think anyone that gets the book should read the whole book. Well, yeah. And so my, and the fermented stuff is at the end. So I have to wait patiently until it's until I'm finished. I mean, well, okay. Well, I, a peek behind the door. This podcast is being recorded uh, way early this week. So I mean, or this for this episode. So I, I just got the book still. So it's, um, you know, it's so okay. I, you didn't have but, to, you didn't have to say that. Well, just People as to as the explanation to as to why I haven't finished it yet. Bu- oh, really? Yes. I think because it's I very really common to, the, to not finish the book in the first week, but I really, I would like to get to that fermentation section, but it's just, I'm, you know, I got to get through the rest of the book first. No, I'm not going to skip ahead. The only thing I did was skip ahead to look at the, the contents. I know I want to read it too, but I have to wait until you finish it because I'm not going to go purchase another book since you have it. Well, there you go. So, yeah, so we'll both be finishing it very soon and we might have more to say about it then, but we've said plenty about that stuff. So There's go, wrong. go get the book, watch the Colbert Report, do all those kind of things. Something else in the news is not really fermented food related, but fermentation related, and it does involve milk. So looking at milk vodka. So there's a farmer over in um, Britain that is a dairy farmer that is making a pure milk vodka. And he's just milking his cows for all they're worth is one way to kind of think about it. But he's he makes cheese and then he uses the whey to make a vodka. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And so he's he's making an alcoholic beverage and uh, he's got about a herd of 250 cows. So, you know, he's got a decent sized lot of cows. And so once he curdles the milk gets his cheese, and then he ferments the rest into kind of a beer, a whey beer of sorts, which I'd be kind of curious to understand how he's doing that because whey is kind of as an interesting flavor anyway. So a whey beer sounds like it'd be interesting, but at the same time, he's not using it as the beer. He's just using that as the the vehicle for alcoholic fermentation. And then he is distilling it, triple distil, uh, distillation to get a vodka. But yeah, I mean, he's a sixth generation farmer. I, it just seems good because whey is a, definitely a waste of cheese making of Greek yogurt making. We've talked about this before. Just another way of making something into something else, which I don't know how much investment he has to go into to making the actual alcohol. But I mean, from whey to vodka seems like a pretty big jump in profits and uh, value added products. Well, yeah, if it's not too intensive to get yeah. there. Yeah. And, and he got the idea from a TV documentary watching uh somewhere in siberia they they milk their they milk their their local yaks for a vodka milk of sorts so he decided he could do it too seems like things are happening over there in europe with that fully um being efficient using yeah. things yeah it happens Reusing. a lot of different places but just some of these more unique stories seem to be coming out of uk 
lately. Yes, definitely. And something that, 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 as far as I understand happened in the U S was a, just recently, um, this last week, there was a, uh, a summit of sorts for getting people together to study or to discuss the health findings of yogurt. And so it's, uh, Danone and nutritionist organizations from both the UK and the U S. So, uh, Danone and Institute International, the American Society for Nutrition, and the UK-based Nutrition Society have joined to evaluate the science of yogurt and the health around the consumption of yogurt. So they, they're calling it the Yogurt Nutrition Initiative for a Balanced Diet, and they're going to be doing this yearly now. So what are they going to be doing, though, really? Just seeing how it benefits people or how their health has improved? Or do you know what kind of tests... Yeah. Well, the main focus for this first summit is, is on regular yogurt consumption for nutrient deficiencies, body weight regulation, and chronic health conditions. So to see how yogurt can help in those kind of things. And they'll also examine the nutrient profile of yogurt compared to other dairy foods. So comparing if yogurt's better than other dairies. Like cheese. They, they also want to pinpoint populations that may benefit most from the yogurt consumption for health That's benefits. just silly. And, you know... Pinpointing, but, I live in the region where they recommend high consumption. I mean, it's... Well, see, this... Okay, so this is some of my issue. Well, I mean, for, in general, a lot of scientific research has to be funded by someone, somewhere. I mean, this is, I would hope, a little bit more unbiased uh, than nutrition... Oh, American Society it. of Nutrition and the UK Nutrition Society, but Danone doing research on yogurt, they're looking to see, well, yeah. you know, have have more to be able to sell and possibly looking at this, you know, after they look at the evidence, campaign. have uh, marketing research as well, knowing who to yeah who to campaign and uh, and market to. But you know, one of my main issues with something like this, especially when one of the major three contributors to this are is a yogurt company, is that where are the studies going to be that are looking at what maybe are the ill effects of yogurt? Not saying that necessarily are, but if we're only looking for positive effects, what, yeah. what, if, if we're trying to pinpoint demographics, what if there's, what if there are people that yogurt is actually doing more harm than good? There's really no one that's going to be funding those studies. And that's where it, it I'm definitely evidence based. I prefer looking at the scientific literature that's out there and, Sometimes, though, with some of these summits, some of these initiatives, it's just like, where's the money coming from? Who is actually motivating this? Because maybe yogurt really, I mean, yogurt has has a pretty long track record of being uh, touted as a miraculous cure-all for so many different things throughout history. But it's just one of those things where it's like, well, who's who who is looking at, at the negative sides? Because I'm sure there have to be some negative sides i mean just like well maybe like too much consumption like too much of anything isn't necessarily good but danone or the u.s version of that being danon i mean they're probably not really looking to fund research on overconsumption just like coke and all the issues with you know sure they're trying to sell water and and, and different things but for the most part they still want people to buy expensive sugary beverages it's always questionable when a company that profits from yogurt is doing the research i agree yeah not necessarily that they're not going to come out with good research i mean they're 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 probably going to be putting some good funding into this but is it going to be balanced studies well yeah and my my question is even when you just mentioned they're they're going to decide regionally where more or less yogurt is consumed i just that kind of stuff really bugs me i just because it's i feel like it really is an individual um, personal decision if someone's going to drink yogurt and there are regions that just don't consume dairy or yogurt so what are they, are they going to just they're looking at, at health reasons not regions not not geographic regions they're looking at pinpointing people that have health issues like who but, what, so what, like what if, health issues yeah and so if if yogurt is one of the products that improves that specific health deficiency they're going to just say this region should consume more yogurt kind of thing not region um they are saying so like if someone has can, oh. can they target people with heart disease can oh, they target people with brain kind, cancer I'm can sorry. they target people i totally people? misunderstood your um 
Uh, So they're going to be focusing on health issues that people have and so that they can target. And I'm assuming Danone wants to be able to market as well to these, to these people with specific ailments and say yogurt can help with that. That's different. I I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. No, they are looking at this from a health aspect, not from a, this isn't market research in the same sense. Okay. And some, some market research and market expansion that is, is going on is a, it's in its third year, there is, has been the European cheese festival. I don't know exactly what it's being referred to as, but Wisconsin uh, has a cheese festival. Well, this one is in China, so it has nothing to do with Wisconsin. It's with European cheese and they're trying to get into the Chinese market where they're trying to do now what wine did over the last 10 years it kind of has really started to be sold and you know there's a lot of people in china so the idea is it's um ripe for conversion into wine drinkers and now the concept is cheese eaters so they're kind of trying to make those people <laughs> like cheese so they could sell it and make money off of it well exactly yeah i mean it's that's funny i mean that's kind of how any business works though to a certain extent I well mean, yeah it just it's it's a little interesting that it's kind of let's let's just be around these people long enough that they'll eventually just start eating it regularly well that's kind of the concept with anything i mean it, it's like people don't know what they don't like or they, people don't know what they would like if they aren't introduced, introduced to it no and then an acquired taste to a certain extent. Cheese arguably is an acquired taste. I mean, yes, there's a lot of funky ferments over in different regions of China, but at the same time, cheese is another one of those funky tastes. If a person is grow up with it, again, we're back to that whole acquired taste thing. And, you know, but there's, um, they expected, uh, it's, it's over now, but they had expected 10,000 visitors or so. And I mean, it's the third year. And the, the, the one Danish cheese producer was saying that the um, the Asian people, as she was referring to them, are are very open and interested in all kinds of cheeses. So they're finding that people are actually intrigued and and looking to try these different different things. I mean, it sounds like there must be a bunch of foodies over in in China um, that are interested in these kind of things. But it, it one person that was in attendance said that they acquired a taste for cheese over when they were studying abroad and, or, or, uh, or living abroad. I don't know if they were studying, but they said that it was just something that, that did was kind of weird at first. They didn't really like the taste at first, but then they've grown to like it. And I mean, once a person eats enough cheese, it's kind of hard not to like it. I feel comprehend not liking cheese. There's a lot of cheeses you don't like though. So I think that that's how you can comprehend it. I guess. Yeah. That's yeah. true. I mean, especially these are specialty cheeses. These are, I'm assuming, more than just, say, a, a simple mozzarella that probably is, is an easier to acquire taste. Okay. You know, blue Makes cheeses sense. or 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 brie or other things, I think, would probably take a little bit more acquisition. But Gouda is too A to go. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're Who definitely... Who doesn't like Gouda and Swiss? There's a lot of people that don't like Swiss, I would say. Swiss is so delicious. It's an acquired taste. But they are acquiring, seem to be acquiring tastes in, in China. And that kind of seems to be the market for, for anything. If you're running out of people to sell things to, there's a lot of people in China. So hopefully converting them to cheese-eating people is kind of the... <laughs> cheese-eating people. You never know. But some really good news, which I don't know if I really mentioned yet, was in regard to the Vili that I was searching for that had the mold that grows on top, that velvety surface. I've been searching for it and i have it and um you know so i I mentioned that i had brewed it i'm prepared it i'm pretty sure but you know this is this is again that that mold that forms on top the geotrichum candidum and it it does change the flavor like i it it does i'd almost say it's a fuller flavor than a vili now we're talking stretchy vili long vili refer back to the Vili episode if those words don't make sense but it's with a stretchy Vili the the one that I had from gem cultures was was good and it is good and I still really like it but it's with the mold that's just a little velvety surface that grows on top and it adds it's the same kind of uh that's on some cheeses and it tastes just a little bit fuller and I got this through like I had mentioned 
when I was searching for it and hoping that maybe this would work out, I had said that I had contacted FinFest 2013. And the, I, I, I just sent a contact information and uh, the managing director there, um, Susie, she was very helpful. She got me in contact with her mother who was, had a friend who makes Vili regularly, sent it to me. Awesome. So very thankful for that. And, uh, and also the, I mentioned it before, but the, it's the FinFest 2013. And so I just wanted to say to people, if anyone is interested in Finnish culture, Finnish food or different things like that, that's, uh, if you're in the Midwest, I mean, it's in the upper region of, of Michigan where there's a large population of, of Finnish people. And it, it looks like it's, it'd be a lot of fun. And definitely say, check it out because I'm sure there's, there's gotta be some Vili there. So if you're, if you're on search for Vili, might as well just go to the festival and go pick some up. And, uh, so yeah, definitely thanks to Susie and her mother. And, uh, it was awesome because I, I'm, I'm very grateful to them because I didn't really think I was going to find this stuff anywhere. So it's just a close to a a nice story. And uh, I'm still trying to figure out the story behind it as to like where this culture came from since I have the story of the other Vili culture I have, but I just am, I'm really excited to have Vili. And so if you're looking for any other kind of cultures or whatnot, this is kind of a nice way to do it. If you're, if you're looking for a traditional culture, that's maybe not sold commercially, then that is definitely an option is talking to some of the different um, ethnic communities, I guess, with the lack of a better description for it, just looking for different areas where there is um, a population of immigrants. If you're in the United States, if you're elsewhere, there's definitely a lot of different ways of finding some more traditional cultures, but talking to communities, I mean, uh, it's definitely, I feel something that finding cultures is, is, is a, is a way to learn more about a culture as well. I mean, I've learned so much more about Finnish culture than I ever knew before. Once is I started diving like into Vili. treasure. Well, a treasure of a culture and everything behind it and what kind of is behind these different things. It's all, it's all just very fascinating to me. And, and I, I'm just, I, if you can't tell, I'm just super excited that I have this Vili now that I yeah, eat I all the time. Correctly, you said that at that point it was really more about just getting it. And now I'm really, I love the flavor. Then I was just curious. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what the difference was. So which really do you like more? Like I said, I like the one with the geotrichum candidum. Yes, because it's, it has just a fuller flavor. It has a, I'd say cheesier smell to the, I mean, this, it's the same mold that is in some cheeses. So it makes sense that it'd be kind of that, that cheesy. So is it really that much drastically different though? Or is it very minor differences? Well, if you would put aside your issue with the texture, I would let you try some and then maybe you could find out for yourself because yes, they are drastically different. Maybe one day we'll see. Okay. Do some side-by-side testing. I would definitely say oh, it's it's awesome. That's all I got to say. We can move on. But that, one other thing in the news was in regard to, and I thought this kind of fit in with that whole acquiring of tastes and maybe texture too. I, I want to do an experiment with you because an experiment that was done recently, new studies that were done to examine caffeine's role and effect on cognitive tasks. But then the one that I was interested in was in food pairing. So when uh, Jennifer Temple is a uh, out of the University of Buffalo, she wanted to find out whether pairing a flavored food with ca- caffeine and specifically uh, caffeine consumption would increase the person's liking of that food. So would the likability of food be changed by having caffeine with it? Not um, and and so so this one was yogurt was the was the test vehicle for this so using yogurt that was flavored with different things that aren't necessarily usually in a lot of yogurts like almond and and mint and raspberry lemon and a savory cumin as well but they showed they did placebo uh, and 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 no caffeine and people with the caffeine and people the results showed that after rating and ranking the seven yogurts over four days, yogurt liking increased over time with the yogurt paired with caffeine. Okay. So if so, you don't like something, just make, have some caffeine mixed in with it and then um, 
Well, like they, this is very, very preliminary. I mean, the next step that they want to do is experiment with fruits and vegetables and then see if there's a way to capitalize on the consumption, the, the growing consumption of caffeine in general. But that's where it got me thinking. It's like with those acquired tastes, with those fermented foods that pe- maybe people think are kind of weird, like Vili, people that don't like the, the texture, eat it in the morning for Vili, especially it's a breakfast food. Definitely for sure. Eat it in the morning with a cup of coffee. Maybe a person that doesn't like the texture would be more likely to like it. I don't know if this crosses over into texture, if it just stays with taste, but those are the experiments that I want to try. Well, why force myself to try something that much if I tried it once and it just isn't something that I enjoy or... Well, think of it this way of, of those, those Chinese per- attendants at the cheese festival that, you know, have been trying it over slowly over time and they didn't like it at first, but now they love it. It's that same kind of thing. What if you are missing out on something that you would love? But I tried it and I don't love it. You tried it once. Yeah. Acquired taste means... But why go through all the trouble to force myself to like it? That's like saying, I don't like the way cigarettes smell. Let me try smoking enough and maybe I'll like it. I mean, it's just kind of silly. I think that there are a few differences and I do not like your comparison of cigarettes and... (laughs) That was just an extreme example. I, it doesn't. It doesn't. Especially work for me. since you really don't like the smell. Of I just think smell. there are plenty of funky fermented foods. Vili is not really a funky one. It just has an interesting texture, and it's one that there's just so many funky foods out there that I think deserve acquiring a taste for. Taste it, it taste it, and taste it again, and then if it still isn't good, taste it a few more times, and and then a person I think can really make a valid decision. But like, at what point do you just decide to give up? How many tries do you have to go through before you realize never it's just not up. something I like? Like, I've never liked liver. It's like that little choo-choo train that could, or I don't remember that childhood story, but you just try and try and try again. Mm, I don't know that that works for me. I'm pretty sure my mom's tried to get me to like liver since I was a, a little kid. In Croatia, liver is very common to eat. Um, and she's tried tricking me by saying it's chicken, it's beef, it's this it's that it's never worked i could always smell it and i and i would i would actually give it a chance every three or four years and put some in my mouth and just cannot stand the flavor see but you weren't drinking caffeine along with it (laughs) that's what the huge difference is and like promised last week this week all about coffee and it being fermented or is it fermented I mean, Who cares? It's, it's good. It is good, but in order to be a part of a fermented food, oh, podcast, we can go off topic. Once no, but in a it's while. not. Well, it is okay. It's off topic in the sense of it's not something that's traditionally thought of as being a fermented food. If someone's thinking of that, but it is fermented. It is often mentioned in a list of fermented foods, such as you know, breads and beers and coffee and chocolate and all these kinds of things. And some would argue. Say, whereas chocolate, maybe fermentation has more to do with the overall flavor. Some would argue that fermentation doesn't have as much to do with the coffee flavor. And it really depends on how it's processed. How do you ferment coffee? Well, we kind of have to step back a little first before we can get into that. Let's step back. So, well, just even before we get into the coffee plant and everything like that, ferment can mean two different, is two different things. It's, It's a process in preparing coffee and it's also something this is where the word ferment when tasting coffees going back to whole tasting and tasting and tasting again people that taste coffees they're slurp slurping their coffees and 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 tasting them and spitting them out and doing all kinds of things when they're tasting coffees ferment is generally considered a defect so while something can have fermentation flavors of strawberry bubblegum or uh, you know any of those kind of barrier type flavors those aren't necessarily bad but if it starts getting sour along with those kind of things then it can sometimes be marked as fermented or as a ferment which is generally considered a defect in coffees Hi, interesting. So, so two different things there we're going to be looking at the process of fermentation and the, the coffee if you're not familiar with it is a coffee tree or bush and it grows in the coffee belt so a certain either direction of the equator is where it grows and the closer it is to the equator, the higher up it can grow. So the arguably higher quality coffees there are. There is Robusta, which is 
generally considered the cheaper coffee, sometimes added to the Italian espresso or whatnot for more crema, the bubble and cream Doesn't that's at the top of espresso. Too? It does have more caffeine. It's just a lower quality plant. It grows at a lot lower altitudes and so can grow farther out from the equator. And it's just, it's cheaper to grow, easier to grow. What makes it a, a not a like a low quality or... Well, it's kind of like you have different you... vegetables. If you have one um, heirloom vegetable versus a uh, hybridized, fast-growing species or breed, then one may taste better than the other. Like a store-bought tomato versus a homegrown garden tomato. I get that. I just don't understand why this coffee is considered of a low quality just because it can be grown. It's not because it can be. It's because probably because of all of those kind of things. It's a different, it's a different varietal. It's a different, these plants don't grow for us to eat them. We just happen to consume beverages or foods from these different kinds of plants. So do you like it? Robusta? Yeah. No, it's kind of truck stop coffee. It's the cheap coffee that you can get different places. And if you look at so green it really coffee, tastes that bad, even if it's freshly, it has it's more bitter. It's it's a rougher, harsher flavor. It's definitely not a specialty coffee in the sense of ones where you're going to get those complex flavors of floral, citrus, and that that acidity. It's it's just not there in the same way. And I will also step back and say that if don't remember from previous episodes talking about how I used to be really into coffee, like a coffee snob geek. You could, you know, say however you want. I don't drink caffeine anymore. So I'm a little rusty on my details. So, uh, I, I've been you know, diving back into all this stuff to get refreshed, but just so you know, like I, I could probably talk about coffee for a very long time. We'll try and stay on topic though, but yeah, it's, uh, so the kind of coffee that comes specialty coffee uh, it, it would be Arabica. And so that it's a different variety, coffee, bush, tree. And the actual coffee that we're drinking is roasted seeds from the coffee cherry. And there are two seeds in each cherry. And they take a long time to grow. Those those plants, well, I, apples take a long time to grow too, but they they you know, it's going to be three to five years from planting from from seed to the point when they are actually producing coffee that's harvestable. And then do they produce every year after that? Yes, and in some regions they'll produce twice a year. So but but a lot a majority of arabica coffee is a once a year harvest, but then there are certain areas for different growing reasons that they are able to have two harvests in a year. Nice. But the uh so, so there's if you if you weren't familiar with coffee, the plant in general or the the tree, it's and and I've got a couple growing in the house, and it's very few berries, but it's starting to produce. I mean, I've only had them for the last eight, ten years, eight to ten years. So, but yes, I maybe will eventually get a a cup of coffee out of them. But so so we're not even to the roasting stage. What we have is a green coffee bean. But in order to get to that green coffee bean, the cherry has to, the fruit has to be removed. And so there's a cherry and then right around the bean is the mucilage, which is going to be kind of a sticky mess of sorts that, that little bit of flesh that stays stuck to the bean. So when processing happens, that's what needs to be removed in one way or another. Well, the fruit and the mucilage and, and, and parchment later on. But the, the method of processing, the, the method of removing that does affect the flavor. And some would argue that it's, it's the most going to, to alter the flavor the most in how it's processed. So two, two coffees from different regions being processed the same way are going to be more similar in flavor than two coffees from the same region produced in different ways. Or processed in different ways. There's so much about coffee that people don't know. Well, there is, and in and, and and we're not even going to get into the 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 side of actually farming coffee and doing things like that. But though that's the other thing is the microclimate and the soil condition. Those are that's the second 
greatest factor. So if two coffees are processed the same, the next biggest thing is going to be the the microclimate because you can actually take coffee from a certain area on a farm and it's going to, if you process that and roast that identically to a different region or quadrant on the farm, that coffee is going to taste different. So would you say that it's really hard to make consistent coffee um, depending where it's grown? I mean, you could have the same coffee type, but if someone else is growing in a different land or soil or temperature, it wouldn't necessarily be the same coffee. It would be different. Coffee is one of those things where it is definitely a science and I'd say that it's one of those things that really leans heavily on science, but it's an art to a certain extent too. And it, it is a whole balance of everything that goes into it. It's, it's challenging. Coffee is challenging to perfect in the cup. And there's so many stages along the way that can screw things up and so many stages along the way that have user error Who potentially is to say involved. What a perfect cup is though. That's what I don't understand. Well, and, and it's always something to strive for, but it's not something that ever really exists, of course. But there's the, those different, there's preferences involved in that. There's taste and everything that's involved in that. And, and all I'm really getting at is that these things are affected. Some of the things that happen way before the coffee even gets anywhere near drinking that go on that affect that final flavor in the cup. And then there are ways to brew it to bring out more of those things in it or roasted in a certain way. And then there's other ways to roast it where it will totally destroy all those intricate details that have been decided by the microclimate in the soil and the processing earlier on. So it's like, you can screw up a cup, you can save a cup. There's so many different pro- things that go on, but it's the actual processing. That's where that fermentation goes on. And there is some argument as to how much fermentation is really going on and should it be called fermentation or otherwise, but it has traditionally been called fermentation in one method what we're going to kind of see is that it's a little bit of fermentation, maybe in all the methods, but the the different methods are a natural, a washed or a semi-washed method. Those are the the main categories for, for how. And these are referred to as fermentation methods. No, these are the different processing methods. The way again, to get the the fruit removed from the seed. So this is not, this is not considered the fermentation phase. This is the just processing. A... Is, the processing is the stage of fermentation. Okay, so this... but it's not processing does not mean fermentation. Okay, so the what we're we're going to have is looking at first is is the natural process, the also referred to as the dry method. This is the oldest method or at least I, there may have been older methods at one point, but the oldest method that is traditionally used. And it's going to, since we talk so much about flavor too, what, and we'll kind of look back and see maybe where these flavors are coming from. But these are the ones that are going to have a dry processed coffee is going to usually have more stereotypically of a, a heavy body, sweet, smooth, and complex. And, the dry method kind of fits with what you see in the, the the climate of the area. It's going to be in an area that is dry enough that doesn't have too much rain in the harvesting season. Uh, so in order for there to be and have long periods of sunshine so that this coffee can be dried properly. It's going to be dried with the fruit still on it. So think about a grape turning to a raisin. It's pretty cool. It's dried this way. And these these are the cup, cups of coffee from Indonesia, Ethiopia, Brazil, and Yemen. Are there are other areas again? There's, there's there's all kinds of processing in all most of these different regions, but those are the main ones that do the dry method, the natural because processing. Because of the dry weather, dry weather, long periods of sunshine, and these are, you know, the, the again the original way of processing coffee, and once they turn into that raisin of a coffee cherry of sorts all those layers of fruit and the mucilage that i was talking about are all going to to dry around that bean and then since there are sugars and the production of alcohols as any fruit is kind of sitting out in the sun leave an apple fallen from a tree 
It's going to ferment to a certain extent. That's arguably fermentation. It's not a technical term. It's not like this is a fermentation stage. The only one that has a fermentation stage is the washed processing, which we'll get to next. But this is kind of where, yeah, it's fermented, but it's not. And and yes, it is. It's it's not the main purpose. The main purpose is to dry it so then it can be removed. Yeah, the, why so is the, that referred the, to as fermentation? It's dry. It's not. That is it, not referred to as okay. fermentation is what I'm saying. That's what I'm but, calling it because it's going to have some fermentation in the fruit, it, which arguably is going to have some effect on the seed. This is very confusing. It's There's a lot to understand about coffee, and we're trying to kind of condense it in. But just trying to break apart just so that you can understand a little bit better where the fermentation kind of sits in. And this is not, again, a technical term. This is not a fermentation stage. All it is is the beans are being, or the the cherries, the coffee cherries are being left out in the sun, raked and different things to keep them so they're drying evenly. But they turn into a raisin of sorts and then the fruit is removed. You know, so it's... It, it, the cherry is like a, a fruit leather of sorts. And then that's really where you get those kind of heavy body flavors, the wild berry flavors, sometimes the defects and different flavors that a good Sumatran coffee, some would argue is a very defective cup of coffee because it has almost some of those defective, almost flavors, but a good Sumatran, I feel kind of wavers on that world of funky and then just right because there's there's other there's there's other people that really the a perfect cup is you know something with bright acidity and clarity of of flavors and different things and in natural processed coffees aren't really that they're kind of the funkier world so when i think of natural processed coffees i kind of think of more that funkier fermented kind of flavors well, I think it's weird that people have a perfect cup in mind, considering there are so many different coffees. And well, there are, and that's that's some of the debate of uh, terroir, which is similar, just the same as that of winemaking, and you know the the soil and the the area and everything that goes into it, and the processing of it is what gives a coffee its traditional terroir flavor of that region. And some of these coffees that have been traditionally naturally processed. Well, even if you could maybe bring the flavor in the bean and process it differently and maybe clean it up or different things, is clean actually a good thing or does that remove some of the terroir? And I don't know where these arguments kind of stand now. Those are the kind of things I was looking back about, I don't know, five years ago. But to me, it just seems like something where we would be having a discussion as the perfect cup of yogurt you know what makes it perfect and i get it i get what you're saying and there but... are things that you can argue that there are more perfect or less perfect cups of coffee See, i don't i don't I mean, believe not in coffee, perfect but, no not anything. perfect but if you're striving for excellence and different things and if but something seems so like a ambig- what's the word a... ambiguous thank you <laughs> yeah well yeah so that's that's where all these flavors and different things kind of come in and, and i think approaching it with Excellence and consistency and other aspects are kind of what people are looking at. And the natural process is going to be a little bit, you're letting things kind of, it's drying and most of it is a controlled drying process, but it is going to bring in some of those funky flavors, which arguably are fermentation. It's not again referred to that way, but that's kind of what is probably part of the process. It's also probably enzymatic. And so that's where it gets a little fuzzy. Is the natural process have much fermentation in it? Some would argue that you're not going to have an unfermented, there's going to be fermentation unless coffee is harvested at night and uh, dried immediately. Because anytime there's heat and sun and different stuff, you're going to get some of those the bacteria or and or yeast involved in the fruit how much effect that has on the seed though that's the the coffee bean how much effect that has is still up for question in a lot of regards but the the natural process is going to then remove that once it's dry that that will be removed mechanically and when we get into the wash process they're going to do it. They're not going to let the the fruit dry on it. Instead, they're going to... Um, do you have regions for that? Or is it just kind of all over the place for... 
well, you kind of mentioned the dry regions, so. Yeah, I mean, m- m- well, this is one, it's a, it's a relatively new method, relatively. I mean, it's still been around for quite a while, but a, a lot of, there's a lot of countries that do a wash process. And most of the countries that I listed before also do a wash process. Is there a reason why some places, sorry to cut you off, is there a reason um, why some places choose one method over the other? Or is it really kind of like a historical path that they choose or like the the family tradition? Or is it making, like, it seems like there'd be so many different reasons why someone would want to choose a specific method? Or is it just kind of... There would be traditional reasons there would be what is best for this coffee and the region that it's growing in there are the issues with expense of equipment there's a lot of different reasons and weather of of the actual harvesting season and different things like that there's there's so many different reasons as to why these different processes are chosen by different areas but you were asking about which countries specific countries you can find them all over the place but these are the coffees that are you kind of have that that at least perceived acidity, you know, from the, from the wet process method. And so the cleaner, brighter and fruitier cups of coffee, floral, I'd say a little bit too, would, would kind of be in there, but they're going to remove, there's, there's four layers that they're going to be removing surrounding the coffee bean. And in the, the washed process method, they're going to be doing it by machine for the first part. They're going to take everything off, but that mucilage, that sticky resinous surface that surrounds the coffee bean. They're going to remove all of that by machine. And then they're going to soak it in water or they're going to do the dry washed method, which is just going to allow it to ferment in its own juices and not add any more water. And both ways are referred to as fermentation this is the only method that refers to fermentation do you think it's fermentation it appears to be the especially those that are that are soaking in water they get kind of bubbly now again this is back to the whole black garlic thing is it enzymatic or is it microbial there's definitely native bacteria and yeast on these these fruits that are adding to the fermentation process and in the water potentially too. But they, the idea behind this fermentation stage is to remove that mucilage. So it's going to, through enzymatic and bacterial and yeast, the after 12 to, or if anywhere from four to, to six days of, of doing this, the soak or the dry method of just letting it soak in its own juices is going to remove that mucilage naturally. And there have been, there's been books on, on, on saying that, that it isn't actually fermentation. And then that's just a term that's been used. And there's even somewhere in history where they were actually adding yeast to the process. And that, so that mix mixes up in things even more, but generally this fermentation is looking at it more from an alcoholic standpoint or uh, the development of that beginning stages of alcohol ferment. But this is, this is where it, there, there is, there are differing sides, but most of the, the discussion that I can find in, in this regard is in that most everything's fermented. The terms get confusing and that's what kind of gets, but it is a fermentation that they're soaking in water. It's just like anything else that you leave to soak in water. It's going to ferment. And it's just the natural okay, I, way I to remove. I was just asking. I feel like you're trying to def- defend no, 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 it's it's very it's it's very confusing as to what exactly is going on based on the research that I could find. I just didn't realize how intensive or how much work there is to really get to a coffee. Yeah, and and one of the arguments for not only you know the work involved in washed coffees, uh, there's definitely less water that's generally used now, but it's it's a very water intensive process, and so that goes back to your whole question of what how how do they choose what kind of way to process it? Places that don't have a lot of extra water, I mean, it uses a lot of water. I mean, these tanks are filled up and they're left to soak, and it uses a lot of water. There are then then there's the um, you know, 
they they actually have the other washed method. They still put it into water, and that to a certain extent is to clean it to check for stinkers, as they're sometimes referred to as the ones that float to the top are beans. Something's wrong with those beans that float to the top of the water. The the high quality beans are going to soak sink to the bottom, and so they'll usually remove the ones that are of lower quality if they're making a nice quality batch of coffee. Unless you're drinking Folgers. Just kidding. Well, they're doing a lot more Robusta in that, so they're using the cheaper coffees anyway. Oh, they are? I didn't mm-hmm. know you actually knew stuff about their coffees. Yeah, I mean, Truck Stop Coffee, Folgers. I I don't know if Folgers is... How, I haven't followed Folgers for a long time. If it says it's 100% Arabica, it's obviously going to be 100% Arabica. But pretty much any coffee that you see that doesn't somewhere on the package or make any kind of claim about being Arabica coffee. It's most likely has at least some level of Robusta in it. So a cheaper coffee. And if you look at the, we haven't even gotten to what beans look like at the end, but they're green before they're roasted and Robusta, like a low quality Robusta. There are high quality Robustas that are used. Like <laughs> that say, just sounds really funny. High quality, cheap uh, Robustas, since it's considered to be like a low quality, it's just funny saying like high quality. It's like, it's kind of like saying, um, upscale walmart or something like that i don't know yeah no it's okay it's i maybe i am have been a little too harsh on robustas i mean some of them are used it's again traditionally used in some blends of espresso in italy uh, you'll get some of that in the united states as well but a lot of the you know that third wave of of coffee shops and different things that are more hardcore and strict about things some that aren't even offering any of the frou drinks or any sugared drinks they just offer coffee and the simple traditional drinks i would love to visit a place like that i don't think i've ever been in one like that that's just strictly so strict about what they set you know what they sell or provide i mean just yeah. pure hey, coffee some i think some of the concept goes back to some of those questions you're asking about like well why should anyone like why why should they be taking coffee and or cheese into china and different things and trying to persuade people to think about things differently. It's about education. It's about uh, experience, seeing things differently. And, you know, some people, I don't know, it's kind of hard when you're in a public situation and you're serving other people. Well, that's a different topic. But, you know, that idea of like, no, we're not, we're not going to do those things that we don't believe in. And so, I mean, definitely a place has the right, a business has the right to do that. And I think it educates people and they get to experience cups of coffee without the cream and without the sugar and different things that are going to cover it up. Oh nice yeah. Froth. I mean, there, Milk, maybe, there really but. is some amazing coffee out there. There is. And, and a lot of these flavors are, again, coming from this, this processing stage. And so just really quick, it's that, that mucilage is going to break down, you know, that's the sugars and alcohols are going to, going to, going to, and, and the enzymes that are, that are altering over that time are going to remove that. And the, the level of that can be adjusted. So this is where some of that more science and possibly art comes into it, that feel of it, but it's the the goal is to remove most of it, if not all of it, but that can be controlled in the fermentation stage and they're in fermentation tanks. So this is where that term fermentation really comes in. But then there is the mechanical demucilodgers, which is a challenging word to, to get out of my tongue, but <laughs> they are, they're removing the mucilage with friction, generally with little tiny bristles that are going to be rubbing on on the the grain. So there, there's not even that that's a wash coffee that doesn't even have the fermentation stage doesn't go into the fermentation tanks in that same sense. And that is also a way to save water, but it's not going to be able to remove a hundred percent of the mucilage, which is what fermentation can do. But then there's the Kenyan water processed coffees, which are, you know, very bright and amazing coffees. If you haven't enjoyed a lot of high quality Kenyan coffees, definitely something to experience, but they go under fermentation twice. They're, they're washed and soaked and resorted and a lot goes in the process of, of, of a, so a is Kenyan it, coffee. Is it all, I'm assuming it's more expensive than a lot of the other coffees. Yeah, there are a decent amount of more expensive Kenyan coffees. Uh, higher quality Kenyan coffees and, and, and a lot of that is going to the, the, the effort that is put into it up front to select and, and process these coffees in a certain way. And the, the, the process increases the proteins and amino acids that those, the, the way that they're soaking it twice in different things. So it heightens the complexity of the acidity. And so that's where you get those really bright 
Kenyan coffees. And that's what the Kenyan coffees are traditionally known for. And that is through that process with the proteins and amino acids. After they're soaked, they're let out to dry and the the parchment is eventually removed. And, and there's, there's a lot of steps that go into it beyond that. But that just so you know, Kenyan coffees are twice fermented. So if you're looking for extra fermented coffees, that again, most of that is for removing something. How much of that actually gets into the flavor of the bean and how much of that is fermentation of the fruit and mucilage that is being removed is still up for grabs. You are but, so in-depth with this. But if the fermentation goes too far, it can put defective flavors into it. So I would say that it does affect it and it is fermenting the actual bean and and it will change the the final final taste of the the coffee then there is just one last thing there's the semi-washed or the pulp natural or the honey however you want to call it semi-washed is generally how i think of it semi-washed coffees they are the pulping of the coffee so they're removing the the fruit but there's still that mucilage that sticky outer surface around the beans holding in those beans and so they remove it but then they let it dry. You're so dramatic. <laughs> they move it, but then they let it dry. They do. They let it dry. They let that mucilage dry, and then they will. Um, they're they're letting it dry rapidly. So again, climate temperature is a difference as to whether somewhere can do this or not. They're letting it dry fast enough so that fermentation hopefully will not be taking place. And Brazil's the most famous for this method. This is. A they don't like that, their fermented coffee? I guess not. So again, there's going to be mild levels of fermentation, at least in the fruit, upon harvesting in those first few hours before as it's being picked. I mean, someone's got it in their little basket as they're hand-picking these coffees. There are machine-picked coffees, but most oh, is really? still picked by hand. Machine-picked? Uh, well, especially with some of the cheaper Robusta coffees or with different things like that. But most of it is still hand-picked. Especially up higher in the mountains, that's where what it just amazes me. It sounds like it's such a there's so much involved to get even a grain of coffee out that it, I just don't know why. There are so many hands involved in a coffee, and we are only in in a very small portion of this. We're not even talking about the growing. We're only talking about a small portion but of. But that's the, what's just so amazing. It's ridiculously cheap. I think, considering with how much work goes into which it, which is why coffee is worth spending more money on. But we which won't get into is why. That. Because a high quality coffee has been touched by so many hands, has put had so much labor, so much effort has been put into it that you can't have those amazing coffees without paying more for them. Especially if once we get into direct trade coffees and, and getting out of the commodity market, because coffee in general is a commodity and it's sold in the stock exchange as a commodity. But then there are direct trade coffees which are dealing directly with farmers to roasters to shop to selling. And so those are the kind of coffees that are really valuing all the hard work that goes into those things. And we're not talking fair trade or anything like that because that's kind of, that still you deals don't in the commodity. You believe fair trade? Well, I believe in, in the idea of fair trade, but it's, again, outside of the scope of this podcast, but dealing directly with the farmers, seeing how these kind of things go, because that's where a lot of coffee is really kind of sold these days those higher costing coffees are really sold on their whole story i mean it's, it's not selling. how anything is sold these days well okay it's, it's people are definitely interested in stories of of you know they want to know their cheese and, makers they want to yeah. know their farmers they want to know everything but there is something to that understanding where our food comes from and so it's the same with coffee take a trip to brazil Brazil's one place to go. There's you can go so if you want to go travel the world, go visit a bunch of coffee plantations and it's would be you wouldn't run out of places to go and and see all kinds of different environments for living and producing and doing all these kinds of things. But but it just just back to they dry that and then they mechanically are going to remove the the mucilage off of the semi-washed method. And you know, there's definitely more that goes into it and just Remember that whether there's an actual fermentation stage in the washed process coffee, or if it is just a general fermentation that just kind of happens because the claim for there being 
fermentation in all coffees is because there's sugar, heat, and humidity. Those things generally make for fermentation. Not all of those are controlled fermentation, controlled in the sense of how soon they're going to process it or whatnot, but how much of that fermentation is actually affecting the fruit and how much is affecting the seed inside that coffee bean may be up for debate. But it's given the temperature, it's going to affect whether it's yeast or bacteria that are doing most of that fermentation. And if there's too much bacteria doing the fermentation, it's potentially going to make it more sour and make more of those off flavors. So we're really looking at a lot more of the yeast fermentation from these things, but it is definitely bacteria involved as well. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on this. It's, I don't know if I would go so far as to say all coffee is fermented because some of it is just a a byproduct of it doesn't the process. Sound like all of it is. It doesn't sound like it is, but it, the, the fruit of the coffee is. But we're not eating the fruit of it, and so that's where I don't know how much of that is enzymatic, how much of it is bacterial, how much is yeast, how much is actually affecting the bean and getting through the mucilage, getting through the cellular walls of the ways. coffee. But who cares? That's the thing. Who cares? Who cares if it's fermented or not? It's still drink it. It's still amazing. It's, it's still, still delicious. It is. And the best thing to do, I think for someone who maybe hasn't had much experience with coffee, but they do drink coffee on a regular basis, is to really go out and get maybe three or four different kinds of coffee and some better quality coffee. And then um, don't coffee makers refer to referred to as cuppings like try them all cuppings next... are similar to wine tastings yeah coffee just, cuppings just try them right next to each other it i think a lot of people would be amazed to really see that there really is a difference in flavor um with many different coffees i know for me before i really got introduced to better quality coffees i just kind of was under the impression all coffee is just one standard flavor that you know wasn't necessarily good but now it's it's funny because now I can't even drink coffee that isn't freshly roasted. Otherwise, it just tastes terrible. Um, but Well, and if you want to go an extra step and you wanted to actually taste some coffees next to each other and possibly not just taste different regions, not just try like you know, some, some cuppings of, uh, from the general public, it's like, they're not necessarily looking at the processing methods. If you really want to understand maybe, and maybe taste some of these things that maybe taste more fermented, maybe not come to your own conclusion on whether what you think, is this really a fermented product or is it not really too much? If I'm, if I'm drinking an, a natural processed coffee versus a washed method coffee or a semi-wash, which is technically going to have the least amount of time to potentially ferment and tastes what the differences are there. If you're doing a cupping, the best way to do it is get the whole bean, grind it up into a coarse grind into a cup and uh, in, straight into a cup. And then you pour the hot water, not quite boiling water into the, that cup. So you have each cup filled with water at the same time. They're brewing the same. And then you take a spoon. And so this, this is, is with the gray, this precise is with the, information. That... This is with the grind, the, the coffee grain, uh, grind still in the cup. You break that crust with a spoon and you smell the aroma. So maybe you'll get some of those fermented notes in there, especially for a natural processed you'll get some of that and then you can scoop those grains out after you've smelled all of them and if you're really going to be legit about this writing them down writing down notes about what you taste and and what you don't flavors need to go you get that far that's just brandon and then scoop off those grains and then you scoop with another spoon and slurp and you can either if you're going to be tasting a lot of coffees maybe you want to spit or if you're just tasting a few swallow or if you want to get really caffeinated either way just Taste it on that spoon. And the idea is to coat the tongue so you're getting full flavor across all of your taste buds and you slurp it in really fast and coat the tongue and you'll get those different flavors and really try and pinpoint. It's like, is this those fermented flavors that you're talking about? And especially if you get some of those Indonesian coffees or otherwise, you'll really start to, to see this. So whether they are, the bean is actually technically fermented or you're tasting things that taste fermented in a good way or a defective way, it's at least now you'll have a, a better understanding of where maybe you stand on. Is is coffee really very fermented or not very fermented? Or even just, you know, just go get a fresh roast or a fresh batch of roasted coffee. 
get a this, fresh batch. Of, yeah. This is just for people like me who used to just not really know much about coffee and drink Folgers. Yeah, well, if if you if you do want to get in more into the debates of different things, or actually looking more at old debates and 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 coffee, I, I realize that you know as much as I geek out on fermentation, coffee is really where. Well, I've geeked out on other things too, but I, coffee is really kind of where it started with the whole. There's there's so many passionate people in coffee and very science driven people that are really trying to understand how to make the best cup, whatever a person is trying to go for, or at least make a, a specific kind of cup and uh, coffeed.com. I believe it's in the show notes is a forum that sadly looks like it's been kind of dwindled out in 2012. And I haven't, I don't see any new posts from there, but that's where you get the, the biggest names in, in coffee roasting importation and otherwise. And that's where you can kind of get a really good, I, I, even though the, it's starting to become a little bit dated, there's so much information there. It's a great place to go for any kind of questions. And, you know, and, and, and that's one of the places I went to, to try and find this. And, and one of the, the, the main, uh, big, big names in, in, in coffee, uh, Peter G, Peter Giuliano, he said that the, the consensus seems that Microorganisms, uh, microorganisms. <laughs> the consensus consensus seems to be that microorganisms are very important in the process. So, and the branding cannot talk. And yes, that that too. So, in closing, just micro microorganisms have something to do with the process of fermented coffee. You decide. And so, if you uh, have have any decisions, if you think it's fermented uh, in in most coffees or not really too much, if you think it's kind of pushing the the term of fermentation and including that into a fermented food podcast, let us know. You can send feedback to podcast at firmup.com. You can also just go to the show notes. We have discuss comments. You can just comment right in there, and find us on Twitter or Facebook at firmup. And we look forward to talking again with you next week. Firm up.